you know, like, again, what we're talking about is the goal. The, the point is, it's supposed to be a tool for the for the kid. Right. And I agree with that 100%. I just want the tool to also be something that helps the kid to see themselves differently. Absolutely. Right? And that's very important to me. Absolutely. So you have, so your, your learning target is clear. Uh, it's clearly measurable. It's at an appropriate level. Um, do you think that the student can look at a piece of work and look at the learning target and sort of self-assess whether or not they're getting there? Welcome to the Grading Podcast, where we'll take a critical lens to the methods of assessing students' learning, from traditional grading to alternative methods of grading. We'll look at how grades impact our classrooms and our students' success. I'm Robert Bosley, a high school math teacher, instructional coach, intervention specialist, and instructional designer in the Los Angeles Unified School District and with Cal State LA. And I'm Sharona Krinsky, a math instructor at Cal State Los Angeles, faculty coach and instructional designer. Whether you work in higher ed or K-12, whatever your discipline is, whether you are a teacher, a coach, or an administrator, this podcast is for you. Each week, you will get the practical, detailed information you need to be able to actually implement effective grading practices in your class and at your institution. Welcome, everyone, back to the Grading Podcast. I'm Sharona Krinsky, one of your co-hosts, and I have with here, here with me our other co-host, Boz. And today, we're really excited to have on the pod with us Joe Zacola. Joe is a national, national board certified English teacher in the Los Angeles Unified School District and a union activist. And other than that, I'm going to have him introduce himself. So, Joe, welcome to the pod. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. I was uh, a little offended that uh, I was not Bosley's first guest, but I'm, I'm working my way around that slight and we'll figure it out. Well, you were Bosley's first guest, but we know who really runs the show around here. And so my mentor got interviewed a couple of couple episodes ago. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I'm OK with you doing it, but I still choose to believe it was Bosley who slighted me. So let's just roll with that. OK, we'll go with that. Is that OK yeah, with you, Boz? <laughs> you are our first non-STEM um, guest and our first um from Civilian, the K-12 world. Call them, right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So thanks for coming on. So uh, clearly, Joe, uh, you and I've worked together a little bit. You've worked a lot more with, with Bosley. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and why you agreed, other than the arm twisting, to come on the pod? Um, so I've been teaching uh, in one form or another for uh over 20 years, I've been teaching in LUSD for 15. Uh, actually, no, wow. This is my 16th year teaching. And uh, really, I'm one of the people in the world I'm, I'm doing, you know, like a lot of people, teaching was my sort of second choice profession, but is my first love. So I'm, I'm one of the people doing who's happier in his second choice profession than his first. And I would say, at least for the last, gosh, eight plus years, grading has been a huge part of that and a, a big journey I started with Bosley. So I was honored and delighted to come on the podcast. Well, that's, thank you very much. That's, that's high stakes. Boz, anything you want to add to Joe's introduction of himself? Well, I just kind of wanted you, cause one of the things we like to do, especially with um, guests the first time they're on is kind of ask them, you know, their, their origin story into alternative grading. Like how did you come to this, um, 
you know, different way of grading. Sure. Um, I mean, this, you know, looking back on the time we spent together at Santee with uh, the principal we had, Martin Gomez, um, they were doing a lot of very valuable training. Uh, they put a lot of money, they and the Partnership for Los Angeles Schools, put a lot of money into training teachers in a lot of really effective ways. Um, and Bosley and I are both truly collaborative teachers who, you know, who give a damn. Um, so we immediately sort of found each other and uh, connected in terms of our connection with students. So that, that was sort of the beginning was we're both growth mindset people. And I, you know, we had a long trip down to San Diego where we did a conference. So we spent, you know, cause we left, I think rush hour traffic. So we spent about two and a half hours in the car, you know, getting to know each other and realizing we, we uh, agreed on most things uh, and then started sort of giving each other stuff to think about in areas where we didn't have expertise. And the beginning of that was, of course, where most people sort of begin in this journey is the case against the zero. Um, and I think Bosley discovered that about six months, to eight months before I did. I went to there. We kept pushing. Um, similarly, Santee uh, Education Complex paid to send me to a DeFore PLC conference. And I had a seminal training there that really sort of blew my mind in the sense it was, it was all about understanding how to score with, uh, they call them rubrics, what I now know as proficiency scales, just, a, you know, scoring, scoring one element or skill on a zero to four, a standardized Marzano proficiency scale. And it was one of the most sort of mind blowing experiences for me because I realized very quickly that most teachers, especially English teachers like myself, misuse the proficiency scale in that we don't make each element distinct, each each level of proficiency distinct. So what English teachers have been doing for years is making the four sort of a three plus. And the idea was is that each level zero, one, two, three, four, zero is no evidence. Uh, each level is gives the teacher something to do. So a zero is no evidence to assess. A one is you're far from where I want you. A two is you're close to where I want you. A three is you've met the target that I want you to be at. And a four is you're beyond the target so sufficiently that I need to differentiate instruction for you. So that sort of was similarly working on me and really sort of blowing me away. And I sort of brought that back and pushed it into a lot of the data-driven instruction we were doing. While at the same time, I was sort of Killing the zero, I'd switched my zeros in my percentage-based gradebook scale into 35s. Uh, that way, just you know, not turning something in got you a 35 out of 100. And then turning something in that was just not good at all, that was an F, was 55. And then 65, and then 75, and then 85, and then 95. And I even think I had 100, too. So I think at that point, let's see, 30, 50, 60, 70, so I was like in a weird seven point scale. I was, I was, I was getting closer to something manageable in my head without realizing it. So there were no scores in my grade book that weren't 35, 55, 65, 75, 85, 95, or a hundred. And I hadn't realized what I was doing was slowly but surely shifting my grades to that zero to four proficiency scale that I was working on. And while all this was happening, I was recognizing as I was becoming better as an educator, I was beginning my national boards journey, that my students' work wasn't aligning to my percentage-based grades. So I get to to final grades, and I'd have a kid who was killing it, but the but the percentage-based algorithm with the with all the you know what percentage is this worth? What value is that? Wasn't lining up. And I was telling myself that the problem was I was cheating as a teacher, 
right? I was being unfair to the rigid algorithm that was so scientifically based that I had set up with a hundred point scale. And it forced me little by little to start, you know, without knowing I was doing it, use my judgment and tweak things. And I was literally trying to create, you know, new math equations to do it until finally, uh, right around the time that I was leaving Santee to, to go to a different school in, in the six months preceding it. And the six months after I had left about, I don't know, I'd say six to seven different people starting with the guy I used to work with. He was uh, an administrator uh, at a nearby school and came to a baseball game. When I was on a free period, I'd walk down. He told me he was at the school. And this guy was a very good teacher. He became an administrator. He said, have you looked at mastery learning? And a bunch of people had started to tell me around the same time. And uh, by the time I had switched to the school I'd left Santee for, they had a cohort that was doing training every week and that sort of shifted me into it. And that was sort of my origin story. And I can go deeper into how that journey has gone since, but the, to sort of wrap it up in a bow, uh, not only have I, you know, gone full bore into standards based mastery or as LUSD calls it, uh, equitable grading instruction. Um, I used it to maintain my national board certification. Uh, it was the entirety of that work was, uh, around my grading practices, I just finished a micro-credential in it with LAUSD. I'm a facilitator, so I can train others, and I'm our school's what's called equitable grading champion, which, you know, it's just a ridiculous name, but it does mean they pay us to get other teachers to do this kind of work. And that's interesting. You you brought up that um, San Diego, what was that, Illuminate workshop that we went down there together, and, you know, that's really kind of where not where we met, but where our friendship really started. Um, You know, I talked about my origin story in in one of our first episodes. I didn't talk about that, but that was really where my beginning of training people outside of the math department, like my journey of trying to train people into more equitable grading started, you know, and you and I did that whole series of case against the zero of, of trying to get, our, our whole staff. And at one point we did um, get them away from using zeros because of, you know, just the mathematical penalty and just death sentence to a grade that that, you know, a zero has on a hundred point scale that, you know, we talked about Trona and, and our episode on what's wrong with traditional grading and, you know, Gusky um, and O'Connell and several others have written several things about, but you mentioned probably one of the most well-known and used articles that that case against the zero. So my question yeah, though, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead Joe. I was saying my question to you, Joe, is why were you open to that article? Like why, how, why did that article make you willing to throw out, you know, a hundred years of grading practice? Well, I mean, for me, it, it's, it's, it's a simpler thing of, um, I've already, I already seen enough to know that as soon as I read it, you know, I, I, I'm a growth mindset person. I don't want to say that sort of like it's trite. What I mean is, as soon as I see evidence that something I'm doing isn't working, I, you know, I long ago gave up the idea that I couldn't change practice based on evidence. So it was just so stunning to me, again, the amount of damage a zero did in a percentage-based system that it, it was it was inarguable to me. Like the part I found, you know, amusing and fr- yet frustrating is, you know, my colleagues who would just rigidly go, yeah, but they didn't do it. They needed zero. Not understanding that the impact, you know, the sentence far outweighed the crime. 
if, if for a better way to say it. So, you, the, you know, what the damage it was doing did not penalize a kid for not turning work in. The damage it did destroyed a kid's grade. So it was a very easy shift for me um, once I read it. I mean, I, I just sort of had a, whoa, this is, this is terrible. I'd never thought about that, you know, and, and, and maybe I had thought about it in the abstract of, well, we'll get him some more assignments. And maybe I had uh, on a student to student basis created more opportunities for them to do stuff, but I never thought about it systematically in that way. So that was, it was a, a real, a real eye opener that just started the journey of the, there's, there's a lot wrong with percentage based grades. Yeah. And, and I also think that is a good example of, you know, we, Sharona, you and I talked a lot of different issues with traditional grading on that, that what's wrong with traditional grading episode. And here's an example of, you know, still utilizing traditional grading, but trying to make it more equitable by, you know, addressing one of those issues. But then it still led to so many other issues still being there. And, you know, like Joe was saying, once he you know, he was slowly making these changes towards a four-point rubric uh, without even knowing it. And then once he got introduced to, you know, what was then called mastery, mastery-based learning or ma- mastery grading, uh, you know, he, he it, it clicked. It made sense of, you know, some of these other things that he was trying to do, but still was having to fudge around with with right. the end grades and still having to make adjustments and and just to get to make to really concretize sort of what i was wrestling with and what most teachers especially if they they serve you know kids who are severely underserved or you know who need far more than they're getting um i had a couple of 11th graders in avid my last year at, at santee i had them 9th 10th 11th and two of these young women were just tanking and they were they were related and they came to talk to me one day after school and they started crying and started telling me this whole story about how their father had gone to jail their they lost their house so they had to move in with relatives they were crammed in one room where they didn't want to be the family who was who was holding them didn't want them so basically they were you know, constantly walking on eggshells, afraid they were going to lose shelter. And, you know, and, and that would just tell me and the teacher, like, can you care about doing work in my class? Why? Right. And what I remember saying to them, and I, I said it with the confidence of, you know, teachers like Bosley and I at Santee were very highly regarded by administration. They knew we, we put in the work. They knew we cared. They knew we had the research to back us up. So if I needed to get some flexibility for an administrator, I would get it. But I didn't connect this to a problem with grading until this all clicked, which was, I said to them, look, you've done nothing. And now we're in like early November. What I can tell you is I can look your parents, my principal and the superintendent in the eye and start you over right now. And and, and just excuse all of that. If you could just show me some, and I remember using these words, some consistent evidence that you can do it. Not realizing there was a whole grading philosophy that was anchored in that. And that's what it's there for. Right. For whatever reason, it isn't it isn't there for just a kid who has holy crap crises going on, but just for whatever reason that if the work isn't done early, but it's done later, why am I creating a penalty system as opposed to assessing what the kid can do consistently at any given moment? Exactly. Exactly. And that's where so many people have come come from for this. And I guess my next question, there's a couple of things that we want to get to. But my next question is. How has that played out for you over the years since making this change? What are the things that you 
see the most and and what are you still grappling with um i'm grappling well i'll, I'll start with the grappling because it just comes for first for foremost to mind i'm grappling with the same things i've been grappling with since i started teaching which is how do i do it better how do i do it faster how do i create less work for myself um and some of that's just seems to be happening other than the fact that i'm kind of a lunatic in that i create more work for myself because i find new challenges and new things that i want to engage in so like this last year i i stupidly took on the challenge and you know, uh, thank the universe. My wife really supports my, my teaching journey. So she was like, yeah, you do it. We have a four-year-old yet. I took on this unpaid micro credential, which was hundreds of hours of work. Um, but that micro credential led to all this new learning, some of which I even brought to Bosley, um, the Gusky book, even though you know all about blue and stuff, but, uh, that's, uh, Gusky's third edition of implementing mastery learning became a, uh, a point of, a point of discussion for us when, uh, I was looking at the second edition, which was out of print, found out the third edition was about to come out, you know, almost almost 25 years later. Um, but so the grappling is I'm just I'm, I'm trying to I'm always trying to find a way to systematize it. We, we because of, you know, most school grade books are still integer based one way or the other. Um, and, and LUSD uses Schoology, which is less flexible than others, probably more flexible than some. Uh, we're hacking the grade book to make it work with our grading system, but it works. Um, you know, so that's my grappling with is trying to figure out a way to always communicate it more clearly. I've got pushback from colleagues, uh, who just want it to, they, they love the percentage based system because they believe that gives them something real. What they really get like is that they can quickly see a number and it tells them they think something. Right. And what Bosley and I would say is it tells them nothing, but it, there is a number there. Right. Whereas in my case, there is no number they can find. So they actually have to either try to understand the system, which I'm happy to do, or talk to me. You know, one of the two. Um, what I see the most is students after pushing back and after fighting it and after whining uh, about the change. Uh, by the end of the year, they go, oh, my God, I love that so much better. Because there's there's always a moment, you know, with five to 10 students in a class where they have that moment where I go, I've got the evidence I need. You know, I had a student who was a real hard worker, but could be really annoying in the sense of checking their grade all this time. And, and at one point they didn't do this last essay well, but they'd show me five other times they did something. They're like, do I need to redo the essay? And I looked at them and said, no. And their, their eyes popped out of their head and go, I've got the evidence I need kid. You're fine. You know? And they were like shocked. I'm like, it's not a favor. You, I've got the evidence, right? Um, you know, I had a kid, two kids actually, who just tanked the most important essay in my class, but they had blown up a bunch of time rights that was demonstrating the same, that was demonstrating the same skill for the exam. And what I was able to do, they both redid it because I told them, I said, well, you've got no problem. You're, you didn't damage your A. All you damaged was my respect for you because you clearly didn't try on this. And I said, but I'm not touching your A. You, 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 you've got mastery of the skill. And the nice part that happened was I got the rewrites because they didn't want me to be, you know, looking askance at them, you know? So I see that a lot. And then the other thing I see, which is the challenge, and this is something that teachers have to sort of steal themselves for, is when it becomes clear that I take late work, I become the lowest priority because I've got colleagues who fetishize deadlines, right? So that means I have to create other forms of pressure, that respect thing we talked about, you know, getting into kids' faces in, in, in nice but uncomfortable ways, things like that. So that is part of the, the work now. But I, I would I'd be lying if I said 
I have a bigger problem with students not sitting at work than they had before, right? Because a lot of the students who do that are the better students now. So I'm still going to get it. You know, they just push it back a little bit. And then when they realize it's not, I'm going to make them uncomfortable, then they don't, you know, and then the ones that don't, we're probably not going to anyway, unless we, unless we apply different kinds of pressure. And those are the challenges that teachers see period. So, you know, uh, ups and downs, a lot of, a lot of it's the same, but uh, you know, the one thing I guess I haven't said is I feel like it, and we can talk, talk about this more. I'm sure these are based, you know, in your questions, Sharona, but I would, I would argue that I have such better understanding of what my students can do and what they know now. I have, and I can explain why, and I have far more comprehensive knowledge of them from my gradebook. My gradebook communicates something to me and to them in ways it never did before. And to follow up on that, sorry, Boz, one question, then I'll let you talk. What has it done to your relationship with your students? Oh, that's, you are such a great follow-up, and you're so right that, that you know, um, the school I'm at now, Marsh, John Marshall High School in LUSD, and the school I was at, Sherman Oak Center for Enriched Studies, um, have a fairly high number of high achievers, but they're both diverse, you know, mixed population schools with every type of student you can imagine, but a fairly high population of kids who are convinced they're going to college and doing well, which usually creates some pretty serious grade grubbing. And what it's done immediately, and again, I can go into detail about how I did this and all that, but is when they say, how do I get an A? I say, show me you can do these things. Right. So it immediately pushes them to the learning targets, which are I can statements, which tell them what they need to be able to do. There are no points. There is no extra. There is no dumping work on me. Right. So the conversations shift to how do I do this? And, and it creates learning. And it's it's wonderful in that regard. That's been the most profound thing. It's certainly part of what I used uh, to maintain my national board certification for sure. And that's, that's really interesting you bring up those conversations because one of the things that you and I talked about, Sharona, on um, I think it was our first episode was how bad our first attempt of doing this was. And I think you asked me, you know, considering how, how much of a disaster it was, why did you stick with it? And it was the conversations I had with the students. You know, I, in particular, the, the conversation that every – teacher has, especially high school teachers or K-12 teachers, that time when grades come up, you know, hey, hey, mister, how do I get more points? How do I, you know, get a higher grade? I've never had that conversation since I've switched. It's been, you know, okay, what do I need to show you about learning target two, if that's what's keeping me, you know? So it's, it's instantly became about mathematics and about the learning and not about points. And you know, you, you were talking about how that conversation looks at the beginning of the year, but it's, yeah, it's that same conversation, which I think, again, that's what has sold me. That That is why I will never go back is I'm no longer having conversations about gaming, you know, grades or point grabbing. It's, it's about the mathematics. It's about the learning. It's about what the student actually needs to improve on. That also, though, kind of brings us up to the topic um, of this episode and really why we wanted you on here this time, although I already have another episode that I'm going to want to bring you back talking about student buy-in and, and you know, how do you get students that aren't used to the system and what do you do when you do have that pushback? So we'll definitely be inviting you back for that episode later, Joe, but this episode really is about learning targets. Um, 
when we were talking in some of our earlier episodes, learning targets, not only is it one of the four pillars of, um, you know, alternative grading, it is also the first thing you kind of have to do before you start putting the nuts and bolts, what we call the grading architecture together. So that's really what this episode is going to um, focus on, which is why we wanted to bring you on because you are in a very different um, discipline than I am. And again, you have, you know, your experience with um, K-12, both from, you know, I know you've done everything from, you know, remedial freshman level English classes to AP Lit and Lang. You've, you've read for both AP Lit and Lang. So you have this really wide, you know, background in the English world um, at, at the high school level. So we wanted to bring you on to kind of talk about those learning targets, what they look like, the different types of learning targets, how you kind of come up with those. Trona, where where do you want to start with this? Well, I want to start with talk about the different types of learning outcomes that you have in your courses and how you come up with them. And then maybe some a little bit about the anatomy of that, like what makes a good learning outcome. Sure. Um, I mean, I don't have I don't have content based learning targets or learning outcomes. I'm not. Uh, and, and the more I know, the less I'm interested in them. You know, I've, I have a, a colleague who is a physics teacher and he's been moved to get rid of his content based ones, because even if you do four to five skills, as you rotate through content, you have to keep demonstrating those skills. And, and baked into that is learning that content. So that that moved him in that direction. For me, it's always been easier. Um, but I would say broadly, I have I have two types of learning outcomes broadly, and then a little more differentiated after that. But the broad based ones are I have higher level thinking learning outcomes, and I have more discipline specific specific learning outcomes that are necessary, but not necessarily uh, de- demonstrative of higher level thinking. So I have a reflection inquiry learning target, which you can demonstrate in conversation, but mostly through writing reflections or writing uh, other pieces of writing that have reflective piece. I've got analysis learning targets. Uh, I've got synthesis learning targets, argument learning targets. All of those demonstrate higher level thinking in one way or the other. Uh, And then in the discipline specific ones, I've got uh, ones that are specifically writing based, ones that are speaking and listening based, uh, which I would argue may be the most important because how we learn, like what we're doing right now is just talking to one another and really listening and building off one another. Um, and I'll have some of the more mechanical things English teachers have, but even that, that's one, that's one learning target for me. So those are the type of learning targets I do. Uh, and again, for, for the most part, they're just, they're just divided under about a third of them, uh, demonstrate higher level thinking. And the other two thirds are more discipline specific. So can you give an example? So when you say discipline specific, because I, we made a point about this when we talked about, um, you know, learning targets, I'm going to read you one of the common core standards and you tell me if this is an appropriate learning target in, in your class, uh, demonstrate knowledge of 18th, 19th and early 20th century foundational works of American literature, including how two or more texts from the same period treat similar themes or topics. So is that the type of learning target when you talk about discipline specific? No, um, although there's some synthesis embedded in that that I could use, right? Like looking at multiple texts and, and, and drawing, making connections between them could hit my reflection one. And then you could also be using evidence from multiple texts to, to push your own argument, which would be synthesis, synthesizing multiple works, you know, 
but no, absolutely not. And you were, you were going to ask her for examples of those? Yeah, I was going to say, can you give me an example of, say, a synthesis learning target or a reflection one? Yeah, let me just, let me just pull them up real quick and read them to you. Yeah, I'll read you the I can statements really quickly. But yeah, for sure, not that. Um, the, you know, the, the, the 18th century stuff, like I want, like, I'm going to look at some of those texts, but I, that's the end of the day. I could care less. Um, you know, I care that the, that kids have the ability to go engage that, that stuff. That's what I care about. Um, let's see. Is this the, yeah. So here's the, here's the learning target for, uh, synthesizing information from multiple sources. I can integrate material and ideas from multiple texts, media types, and or sources in order to answer a question, solve a problem, or support my own argument. Okay, and I think that is a perfect example of how you're not you're not ignoring the Common Core state standards because those are you know legally what we were supposed to be teaching. You're not ignoring that in any way at all. But that's not the learning target. The the learning target, like you just read, you know, utilizes and can incorporate that common core standard, but that's not your learning target. The common core standard is not, you know, word for word what the students are being um, graded on. Correct. Well, I, I think that leads to another point that is worth mentioning. And I, I tell this like, when I was when I was uh, doing a, a professional development session on this, you can't do one for one anyway. There are too many standards, right? So my learning targets incorporate multiple standards. Um, my synthesis one, I, I, I had redesigned it recently, so I haven't put the, the actual whole count of Common Core, but I'll give you the count for, for example, analyzing uh, rhetorical details of text in relation to purpose, which is the primary 11th grade learning target for analysis, rhetorical analysis. I'm just looking right here. Let's see. It is one, two, three, four Common Core standards. So there you go. You know what I mean? Like the idea is there, 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 there are mashups of standards and some standards overlap between learning targets. And um, so that's that one. Do you want to hear another one? Is that important or are we good with the one? Uh, well, before we go on to another one, I want to hear, I want to see if I can reiterate to you what I heard in that, that statement that you just made. Um, yeah. So first of all, you want the student to do something, right? You want them to integrate this information in order to do a variety of things, answer a question, different kinds of things, right? So it sounds right. like you have an action verb in there. And it's an oh, action yeah. verb that you can externally measure, correct? Oh, yeah. And, and it's, and it's you know, do you, is it solving a problem? Is it answering a question? Or more often, support my own argument, right? Okay. Um, so I, 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 what you know, and that's usually what it is. I just have the other ones in there because sometimes... When there's problem solving, they'll make a connection and I'll hear that and I'll quickly document that. You just showed me you can synthesize, kiddo. Or, or in a conversation, they'll answer a question by putting a couple of different texts together or, or, or different ideas together that were clearly from different units and you see this higher level thinking going on. But more often than not, it's I want to see them use other people's ideas to, to support their own argument because that's something we all have to do and we spend, you know, gosh, I'd say – you know, half of our submitted work in college or more is doing that. Mm -hmm. Right. So it, it's just really, really important. So that's, that's, but that's it. And yes, they're, they all have to be doable. Right. So you've got an externally measurable thing, an action that someone has to take. Um, you have that I can statement, right? So the student is identifying with it. Um, your language seems like something an 11th grader would be able to understand like that if an 11th grader could read that learning target and understand what you're trying to get them to do. 
Yeah, I, I'm, I'm somewhere in the middle on the kid-friendly language stuff. And what I mean by that is I'm never dumbing down for kids, right? Um, because I, I want them, I want, it, I want them to think of themselves as scholars. But I also don't want to have their eyes glaze over like if the three of us, you know had to look at a, a traditional PhD dissertation, we'd want to kill ourselves, right? And, and I know the trend in academia is actually pushing away from that for that very reason, that when the goal is to increase the body of knowledge, why on earth are you giving me something that is so hard to engage, right? But so that's the balance I'm doing is I want them to, I want it to elevate a little bit and make them feel like I'm going to become, you know, a badass in this room, you know, and, but I want them to be able to engage with it and not be turned off by the language as well. Right. Well, in my argument, especially in our discipline, where some of the content, you cannot understand the language until you've learned it. But my argument is, at least after you've shown proficiency in that skill, you should be able to understand the language. Right. Yep. So yep. so it may not be beforehand, like uh, in engineering, one of our, our, our teachers likes to say, um, they have to be able to draw a free, a free body diagram. Now you understand each of those words, free and body and diagram, but you probably don't know what a free, a free body diagram is. I don't know. I what definitely do not. Right. Yeah. But if you learned it, then you could go back and read this standard and you would understand it. Right. Yep. So, so you don't necessarily need to be able to understand it before you do it, but you certainly need to be able to understand it after. And the reality is if you were to take your 11th grade standard and show it to a fourth grader, they might not be able to understand that language. Correct. So, Correct. so you don't want to be and, so and, far away that, you know. Right. But I don't care if a fourth grade grade, but you're right. I, I, I would like it. I would like a 10th grader to be able to look at it and have an idea. Mm-hmm. Right. Because, yeah. So, yeah, I just I just the only thing the only thing I sort of bristle at is some of that kid friendly language stuff. You know, like, again, what we're talking about is the goal. The, the point is, it's supposed to be a tool for the for the kid. Right. And I agree with that 100%. I just want the tool to also be something that helps the kid to see themselves differently. Absolutely. Right? And that's very important to me. Absolutely. So you have, so your, your learning target is clear. Uh, it's clearly measurable. It's at an appropriate level. Um, do you think that the student can look at a piece of work and look at the learning target and sort of self-assess whether or not they're getting there? With the proficiency scale, you bet, because the proficiency scale, um, you know, one of the things that, you know, it's funny, I'm a, I'm a union activist, but one of the things I say over and over again, and, you know, we've, you know, Bosley and I have been part of two strikes in the last six years against this district, um, as much as I organize against some of the things that this district has done, the training around what was called mastery learning grading is now called equitable grading instruction has been fantastic. And that includes uh, something they called an unconference, which is basically they give you 10 day, 10 hours of PD time over two days to develop products and with help with coaches. And one of the things they did that was so tremendous is they really helped me to rethink my proficiency scale. So I took, you know, there of the 10 hours, I think there's two hours of time that's little mini lesson, a little debrief, all that. So it's eight hours of work. I'd say of those eight hours, I spent six and a half just tweaking this proficiency scale that ended up becoming the model for the rest of mine. And the whole point of it was, was to make it into digestible checkbox, text box, I'm sorry, checkbox chunks. So that when a student looks at what 
is proficient for this learning target. They're seeing digestible. I've got to do this. Check. I've got to do this. Check. And it makes it very easy for them to understand. So when I have that and I combine it, you know, with some exemplars of successful work, you know, and, you know, obviously some introductory teaching, but they can keep returning to those proficiency scales and using them to self-assess, which is the whole point. And that's even their thinking in this unconference was you've created a great tool for a student here. And I think that's, that's the most important part. If it's not for them to use, what am I doing it for? Right. So two things to follow up on that. Can we hear one of your discipline standards and can you share one of those proficiency scales that goes with one of those? Yeah. Um, your discipline practice standards. Uh-huh. So this would just be crafting thesis statements. Okay. All right. And let me open it up. There we go. Bear with me. Okay. Uh, I can create a thesis statement, which not only presents my opinion as an arguable idea, but also provides a clear roadmap to focus and develop my argument. Uh, and by the way, that's uh, Common Core Standards uh, writing two, four, five, six. So again, four standards for the thesis. And then you want to hear that you want me. You want to hear the criteria? Yeah, the proficiency scale. Yeah. yeah. So here's what meets the learning target is: your thesis statement, written or stated, demonstrates that you have a clear, understandable argument, uh, and for analysis essays, a defensible interpretation of the text, which also establishes a line of reasoning. And then I have uh, three checks boxes, three text box here. Your thesis pr uh, presents a clear and understandable argument. Second one, your thesis sets up a line of reasoning, and I put in parentheses what that is, multi-part argument. That, if followed, would structure and focus your essay. And then finally, if your essay is analysis, A, if it's AP English language, generalizes the rhetor's claim in their text and what they want to persuade their audience to think, feel, or do as a result of the argument, or if it's AP lit, generalizes the meaning of the text into at least one big idea or theme and one simple truth that the text communicates. So that's your, your meets expectations. What are the other levels on that proficiency scale? So for exceeds, uh, it would be your argument is persuasive, um, which is nuanced and explores complexities or tensions within the situation and or articulates the implications or limitations of the argument by situating it within a broader context. Um, uh, and then that's, that's Lang argument if you were doing, and then it does it for each different type of essay. So if it was an analysis, generalizes the rhetor's claim in their text and what they want to persuade the audience to think, feel, or do with the argument and demonstrates a complex understanding of the rhetorical situation uh, for lit, generalize the meaning into at least one big idea and one simple truth that the text communicates and demonstrates sophistication of thought. Uh, and then it sets up a line of reasoning uh, that would structure or focus your essay in a sophisticated, insightful, and or nuanced way. Uh, and then for analysis essays specifically, it also adds uh, identifying and exploring complexities and tensions with the text and or articulating the implications or limitations of an argument by situating it within a broader context. And then for English literature, identifying, exploring complexities or tensions in the text and or illuminating the student's interpretation by, again, situating it within a broader context, which basically means, you know, connecting it to the world they live in. That's the four, the exceeds. The two lists the things they may not have done. And, you, and it sort of becomes a list they may not have done. So does, it have a, does it have a descriptor like developing or almost there or yeah so it's it exceeds. is so four is exceeds learning target two is approaching learning target okay. uh one is does not yet meet learning target um okay 
And so then, you're still using that growth language, that growth mindset language in all four of your categories. Does not yet meet, approaching, meets, exceeds. Yep. And then uh, for just the language in the two, your thesis statement demonstrates you have a defensible interpretation of the text, but you either might not yet have established a line of reasoning or your line of reasoning is not yet sound. Okay. Yeah. And even in your descriptors, you're still using that, that growth mindset um, type of language. And I I know this episode, we're trying to focus on the learning targets, but I have to bring up um, because you were talking about this rubric and the learning target is actually, you have that learning target in both your AP Lang and AP Lit class, correct? Correct. But the rubric is slightly different. Correct. The, the, the I mean, it's a shared reason. rubric with, with, with specific demarkers that take you down whichever road you're using. Yes. All right. So in our episode, when we were talking about the gradient architecture and, um, you know, how you come up with some of these rubric or proficiency scale um, descriptors, you know, looking at the specific course, the purpose of the course, your audience, your, you know, your teaching style, your students' learning style, all of those things come in, you know, come into play when you're building these. This is a, a prime example of, you know, same teacher, similar students, you know, maybe a year difference between them, but a different purpose for the course. So you have slight differences in the rubric and, and you know, that's appropriate because of the different purposes between an AP Lit class compared to an AP Lang, correct? Correct. And and that thesis learning target is one for my ninth graders as well. It's just not nearly as complex. Right. So what I look for is more generalized. Um, and I have, uh, you know, I'm looking for different things that are that's that I'm not asking them to dig as deep into yet, because, you know, with ninth graders, they may not yet have have moved fully past concrete thinking into abstract thinking. You've got a lot of places where the brain is going, but those skills should be the broader ones, like having a thesis, you know, having a controlling argument for your argumentative uh, level of thinking should be, should be done at every level. So a lot of that stuff repeats with just different levels of nuance as, as we go and things don't. And that's also a great explanation and example of, you know, when we were talking about you know, and kind of naming this as a discipline learning target compared to a content learning target. You know, this is that that being able to write a thesis is something, a skill that is required in across the entire English discipline. It's not an AP lit. It's not an AP lang. It's not a Correct. ninth grade skill. It's something that, and it, it's not even done in high school. That's, you know, we, we continue to work on, even I had to work on as a math major <laughs> working on through it in college. Well, and, and, and by the way, that's one of, one of my sort of uh, transformative moments as a student that has impacted me as a teacher was I was very successful in my high school, or my, 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 my college comp classes and i learned from my teacher who i got along with quite well that my my 10th grade english teacher really set me up to succeed and and her point to me was that you know my job for comp one and two is to break you down and rebuild you because most high school english teachers don't teach their kids how to write she's like you knew how to write so we're having different conversations so I began my journey as a teacher once I got into high school because I've also taught middle school as well with the idea of I want to be that teacher. 
and, and, and I've had my students come back and say that, that people go, yep, you can write, you're good. You know what I mean? And I, I want, I want them to do that. Cause these, so these are skills that they need at college. And, and that's very important to me that I, more than almost anything that, you know, like I, I always tell my kids, I, I want them to pass the AP test, but at the end of the day, as long as they can succeed in college, the AP test is icing, right? The cake is, do you have the skills to be successful in college? That's my job. So that's what I think about. And if they don't go to college, whatever, as long as they have the skills to be successful in college, I did my job. What they choose to do with those skills is up to them, but they should, they should possess those skills. We should be developing those skills together. Well, the other thing I love, Joe, and, and the way in which you were so valuable to me is I am anything but a writing teacher. I know how to write. My writing is excellent. I can't necessarily articulate why it's good. I just had a lot of training, a lot of good teachers along the way, but I'm not a writing teacher. So when I had my history math class and I'm seeing this absolute horrible writing, I, I didn't know what to do with it. I didn't know how to get it to move. And you sat on a Zoom with me and you read it and you said, well, it's not that they can't write. It's that they don't understand what they're writing about. So you were able to see somehow that they really could write my students, mm. you know, at, at different levels. But, and, and it's a history of math class. So what level of writing can I really expect? But it is a senior college course. No, it's argumentation, right? They, they, you know, whether their argument is this is where this math concept came from or their argument is whatever. It's, it's for sure. And I think one of the things that has been, it was fun for me about that was, you know, we had to sort of crack open what you're asking them to do and really think about it because what you're asking them to do is very different than what I'm asking my students to do, but that at some level it's the exact same thing. Right. And so we got to bring our disciplines together to figure out why was the student not meeting expectations? Was it their mathematics? Was it their writing? Was it both? And, I, and it was to some degree both, but I'd say a lot of it was actually the mathematics. Hmm. Um, because as yeah. soon as I provided the guidance on that, their writing got a lot better. And I really didn't comment on their writing other than to say, you know, your argument isn't clear, essentially. That's fascinating. The only, the only comment that I ever made on the actual writing but usually the, the, the writing wasn't clear because the thinking behind it wasn't sound, which points you back to the math. Exactly. Yeah. So that was, that was yeah. a fascinating experience for me. And, and, you know, that absolutely is, you know, when, when my stuff, when, when assignments from my class come in that are muddy in that way and, and hard to see, it usually has more to do with the fact that they haven't figured out what they want to say yet. Right. Or they don't know. They don't know what they're saying. Even worse. Right. But yeah. And the good news is if you're if you're being clear about your purpose as a as a writer, it, there's nothing to BS because you've already like you've sort of laid it out. You know, it, it, there is no I'm just going to BS this paper. I don't know how you're going to do that without a thesis. You know, if you don't tell me what you're proving to me, I have no idea how you're going to do that. You know, even good opinion pieces do that. All right, so uh, I've got another question for you, Joe. Um, how long have you been teaching AP Lit, AP Lang? So, uh, Lang since thirteen fourteen. Uh, so this will be my eleventh year, right? And Lit since fourteen fifteen. And how many of those 
did you use some sort of, of alternative um, grading systems with? I mean, it depends if you mean was I when I was fully doing it, or do you mean when I started doing the the modified? no when when you like fully went away from traditional, whether you whether we call it mastery or EGI or or alternative, like when how long when has it been since you made that points switch? Points and percentages. Yeah, six yeah. full years. So, have your learning targets stayed the same all six years? Um, for five of the six, but I did something very different and it's a fun story to tell. And I, I tell people, this is what they should do for themselves with whoever they have. But a lot of people don't have the luxury I had. So I had, uh, a student teacher, uh, during the 15, 16 year, uh, at Santee, her name is Caitlin Sobolski. She's an amazing educator now, uh, LUSD down in Carson. And she did her credential through USC. Lord knows why she wanted that student debt. I don't know. Um, but I really admired their program in that what they did is, uh, and then they stuck her with me, which, again, I'm just so grateful for that experience and, and the relationship we still have based on that. Uh, also becoming an amazing union activist, but I digress. Um, <laughs> USC let her sit in my class for the fall semester and observe. So she was there four to five days observing for the fall. Then in the spring, it was the, she observed, then take some classes and then take the classes all the way through. So by the end of the six, the, the 15, 16 school year, I had a human being who knew my teaching practice as well as anyone, right? The only person who knew my practice better than her was me. And you could argue in some ways she knew it better because she was clear eyed watching me as opposed to, you know, all the things we don't know about ourselves. So when I decided I wanted to do this after my first year where I, you know, built the plane as I flew it. Um, um, and that said, I did not have the experience that you had. I didn't have a disaster experience because I had you, Bosley. You know what I mean? I had people who had already sort of stumbled. So I wouldn't call it a raging success, but I would call it more successful than not. And the kids liked it. Um, so I was pretty happy with it, but I knew I needed to be more precise with my learning targets. So what I did is I bought Kate breakfast and ended up buying her lunch as well. Um, and we sat down and literally I said, today's conversation needs to be about what do I value as a teacher? Help me to see myself as a teacher. And we distilled the things that I was trying to get them to do. And then I took those and went into common core standards and saw what standards they aligned to and wrote learning targets based on what I valued. Um, so the only shifts have been, when I knew I needed to teach something that wasn't on a learning target. And then I just went back and thought about it and thought about what it did in terms of standards. You know, for example, I I've done very few narratives, uh, much, very little narrative writing as a teacher, but now I do a decent amount. I have kids do a reading memoir, which helps them to develop an identity as a reader. But more importantly, as they get going, they turn that same skill into their personal statements. Um, and that becomes very important to them. And it's the exact same type of writing. It's a, it's a reflective, memoir type of writing that and which i've turned into the learning target uh writing narratives to reveal truths and you know with, with those few exceptions they've stayed the same because i literally deconstructed my practice to i think i know what i value but help me see more clearly what do i value and what does that mean so all my learning targets are the way i teach see and and that's very interesting i kind of already knew this story that's why i asked um 
because a, a lot of people that we've talked about, in fact, we had a, a great um, keynote a couple of years ago in our grading conference about how many different kind of iterations and how much it has changed from, you know, when they started to where they are now, you know, Sharona and I have talked about how, how bad that our first year was and, and even just how much different it is, you know, from now, even going just back a couple of years. But part of the reason, at least I believe part of the reason that so many of us have had so many different iterations and things is because we don't really look at those learning targets like we the the way that you um, broke them down you know the way that um, you and Katie went and you know you really like I said you you bought her breakfast and ended up buying her lunch because you guys were there for hours just really looking at you know what's important to me as an educator and as a way that you know you teach um, what does the course need? What do the students need? So it's a very interesting and unique story. Like out of all the people I've talked to, I don't know of anyone that has been as consistent with their learning targets as you were. And, and it really is. It, I, I would be willing to bet you'll agree. It's a hundred percent because of the way you broke down and really took some serious, serious, time and soul searching on developing those learning targets. Yeah, I, I think that's 100% right. And I'm not, I mean, it's a good model to follow, but you have to have a couple things I had. A, someone who has seen you in action enough that they can give you that check, right? Because I really wanted someone to check me and say, do I value this or do I think I value this, right? Because they'll see how often you do it or not. And then the other thing that makes me a little unique is and, and national boards only solidified this. And I was, I was, by the time I'd done this, I was finished with the national boards process. So that's important. And another, one of the reasons I'd recommend the national board process is if you really embrace it, it does wonders for your confidence as an educator, because you, it's a very reflective process and forces you to look at yourself. And if you like what you find or who you're becoming, your confidence really grows. So I, you know, as Bosley would tell people, I, I never lacked for the appearance of confidence. Uh, in the classroom and certainly not with the kids, but uh, finishing the NBC process made me realize I was pretty damn good. Um, you know, and I wouldn't go further than that, but pretty damn good is a good place to sit with. And because I know myself as an educator and it also helps, I started teaching it's a second career. So I had no crisis of who am I right in the classroom. I knew who I am because of all that. It made it very easy for me to do. And I'm, I've always been very clear um and part of my constant journey is what do I value? What do I value? What's important to me? What's important to me? You know, and, uh, and Bosley and I both, I think we would spend more, like we get pissed off at the same stuff, right? Like we, we value the same things in, in education and with our students so we can talk about it. But because of that, because I know who I am, because I know what I want my students to do, I have a fairly concrete philosophy and a teaching practice. And if you start with that, that you know who you are and what you want your kids to do, if you do some work, you know, it's pretty easy to come up with these if you give yourself time to do it. And, you know, obviously it only took me a day, two days to really, really come up with them. But I would say a few weeks is all it would take as long as someone knows, you know, what they value or, or can we start those questions. And even if you only get four or five of them, it's a really sound foundation to start with and the rest you can build up. But if you have four or five that you just know this is what's important to you, 
sort of four or five learning targets that can anchor you, you know, and, and you're right. That's the key. If you don't have good learning targets, I, I don't know where you go because everything is based on those learning targets. Yeah. Well, and what's, what's coming up for me, Joe, is I resonate very highly with what you're saying in my mathematical practice targets, but it doesn't, it's not hitting for me on my content targets in part because I teach a very different set of classes that have a set of, of content. I'll, it, for me, an analogy to me in English would be if you were to teach a Shakespeare class where the intention was they had actual Shakespeare knowledge coming out, like specific knowledge of the different plays and things like that, would that change anything relative to the courses that you teach now? Because it seems like you can not, you, you don't have to have actual content knowledge coming out, but what if you had a class where you did have to have specific knowledge coming out of it. So, yeah, I I hear you. I guess what I would argue is it doesn't have to change the targets because I'm not going to give a test. Um, I don't give tests. I don't believe in them for an English teacher. Mm -hmm. You read, you write, you listen, you speak. Um, So the last thing I want to do is start assessing recall, right? What I do want to do is see that they can they can synthesize Shakespeare. So I take that synthesis and I say demonstrating knowledge from that text. It's still a skill, um, and, and the reason I say that is, and I, I wouldn't I wouldn't be as confident saying this if I hadn't talked to, you know, uh, uh, my my friend's name is Mario Martinez. He's up in Portland now, but he's certified here, and in, 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 you know, national board certified here at LUSD, and then just moved. And he had this big aha moment. It was teaching it to the science teachers that I mentor in EGI at Marshall. And it really, it made me feel very comfortable in the skills-based approach because what I'd be struggling with if I taught that Shakespeare class, which by the way, thanks for sticking that in my head because I would love to do that. Um, they, they do they do electives uh, at Marshall. I just don't know that that's going to be my my uh, lucky break for a while But because um, I'm, I'm a huge Shakespeare fan. But I don't, like, I don't want to get into that game. I would rather they demonstrate it in other ways. And I think you can tweak the skills in such a way. Because, again, look what you just said. Like, there's a reason you're more sound on the mathematical practices. It's not a coincidence, right? It's obvious you're an excellent teacher. You're more sound on it because that's what matters. And you, if you shift the, the practice into that content and you do it deliberately enough, the content will follow. And that's, that's what my, my science friend convinced me of. And that's exactly how I would approach Shakespeare. So I, you can't write me the essay without talking about Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. So you're going to get me the content knowledge, but I'm not assessing that I'm assessing it's going to be in there, but I'm assessing the higher level thinking in that content. knowledge. I'm assessing the thesis in that content. Um, so I, I think, I think that's what it is because Lord knows when, when I hear pushback, from people doing what we do, the big pushback comes from the content people, from the people who say, I have too much content. And I think that's, I think that's a trap that is, it's more a mirage than anything, because if you just focus on the skills and you move it to the new content and the new content's where you're assessing, you don't get the content, you can't show me the skill. And that's what my science friend pushed me to. I'm not saying, you know, my thinking evolved to that. My thinking could always evolve in a different direction as more evidence is presented. But I'm, I feel pretty confident, you know, certainly for that Shakespeare class, that that's how I would do it. So if I could put that in context for, you know, we probably have a lot of STEM folks uh, as listeners, just from given where we're starting from. What I'm hearing you say is if I have a, you know, problem solving strategy skill, 
And each time I am um, switching classes, I'm using new, uh, new content to assess that skill, they're gonna get the, um, the content. Even if I don't specifically say, you must be able to do this particular integral. I, I think a hundred percent, and and maybe you're tweaking a proficiency scale slightly in terms of the steps they need to make. You know, I, what hit my head, and this is something that fits me and Bosley, which I think would connect, is throwing a baseball versus throwing a football. Right? The fundamentals are almost the same, and they shift in a little bit with where your hand is on it. This the way your hand comes forward. It's, it's going to have the same impact on your elbow for the most part and your shoulder, but there's different things going on. And again, because you're throwing a different ball, you're going to have to demonstrate you can do it in the more in the more specific way for that sport, right? So I, I think that's where it lies. That if you just like again, you're going to have to show me you can do it with this mathematical set of content because that's the game we're playing. And I think I think that is it's it's a simpler and simpler. I would argue it's almost always better, right? Because simple doesn't mean easy. It just means you're 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 reducing it to its most essential elements, and and it gets you out of this writing these holy cow, you know, proficiency scale rubrics that are just so Byzantine. And again, then and also when it comes to content, again, the last thing I want to be doing is ever 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 in my life assessing recall. You're a great rememberer. You know what I mean? Like, again, when we use stuff a lot we can imprint it in memory. So create a way for him to use it a lot. Well, on that note, you've certainly given us a lot to think about. <laughs> yeah. And, and I, I really do, uh, Joe, it's always great talking with you. Uh, I want to thank you for um, joining us today and I hope your schedule is open enough. Uh, we're going to be asking you back several more times. Uh, like I said, I've already got two episodes in mind just already from our conversations today. Well, I'm sure all your listeners can tell that I love hearing myself talk, so that'll be just fine. Well, you're in good company with the two of us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we can just go and go and go. Well, I can tell you the story, and I will once we sign off, of, of how I got what happened when I asked Bosley to do this podcast. But you know, with that, thank you all for coming back to the pod. Thank you, Joe. We're going to put lots of stuff in the show notes, and uh, we look forward to seeing everyone around the pod. Please share your thoughts and comments about this episode by commenting on this episode's page on our website, www.thecreatingpod.com, or you can share with us publicly on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. If you would like to suggest a future topic for the show or would like to be considered as a potential guest for the show, please use the contact us form on our website. The Grading Podcast is created and produced by Robert Bosley and Sharona Krinsky. The full transcript of this episode is available on our website.